Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 33, Environmental Philosophy with Yogi Handlin. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a theme in this last couple of episodes. I know, I know, it's very subtle, but maybe you've noticed that it has been kind of about climate. And I did not really intend this podcast to be about the things that are actually happening now in society, the current affairs. I wanted to speak with people more about the eternal values, like the ones on the surface. But I guess I'm learning as well, right? That those two aren't separate. And I knew this already, but they're not separate in ways that I hadn't seen before. So a lot of things that we've been talking about, well, they're happening now if you look around you, if you watch the news, and there, some of them are happening in my own life as well. A while back I was also talking about the difference in Plato's cave between the first and the last scene. In the first scene, prisoner is released and dragged up to the surface. The prisoner struggles, they want to go back to their seat, they're in pain, everything like that, okay, 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 but they get to the surface. And once they see something new there, they realize the way I have seen the world, that what I experienced is only a part of what there actually is. And when the prisoner returns into the cave, they have a new insight. They also, they can put what is happening there in perspective. So then we get to the last scene where the people who are still in the same position as the prisoner was before, they're still watching the shadows. They're still being distracted by it. They're, they're busy with, well, in our society, you could say with competition, with social status, with making money, with all those kind of things. And it's not that those things are not good or something like that. I'm not saying that. But it means, like we discussed in the episode with Bergson, that their perception is limited because your perception is narrowed by action and that determines what you see and what you don't see and even what exists for you and what doesn't exist for you. So what is the difference between the last scene of Plato's Allegory of the Cave and the first scene? Well, in the last scene, he tries to free those people, but they resist and they even try to kill him. So that's the part I'm interested in right now. What is it that if you come somewhere, you present, I don't know, scientific findings, perhaps even scientific findings that we have known already for over 40 years. Actually, that companies that like Shell and ExxonMobil knew much longer already and decided not to share with us and instead spread disinformation that is still affecting our society and our portrayal of science today. What is it that if you write about that or speak about that, speak out about that, there is such resistance and it seems to be personal, like people getting angry, people telling you that you don't take them seriously, people wondering like, what are you doing here? <laughs> So what is it that is so threatening to them? So this is the simplest way I can put it. Why do the people who have been in the cave get so angry? Why do they try to kill the one that tries to free them? It's because they are afraid of change. 
They want everything to stay the same. And of course, change isn't always good. And there's a value in traditions. And we also need a transmission of the past. We actually need to be in touch with our elders and their wisdom. However, as people like Darwin said, survival of the fittest means survival of those who can adapt and can change their ways if the world demands it. Right now, we live in a world where if we keep on doing things the same, well, our children won't have an easy time. So we desperately need to change. And there are many, many people and more and more people who are saying that. But the people who want to keep everything the same now start to be in touch with their fear and their anger and their emotions. And I guess in a way it's a good thing because they've been out of touch with their emotions. But if they get angry, and if those people are the ones in charge, you better get out of the way. So I'm very happy that I am able to discuss with just the right person. It almost happens every episode <laughs> that it's just the right person that I can speak about this with. Our guide to Peter's Cave today is Dr. Yogi Hel Henlin. He's an environmental philosopher and a public health scientist. Henlin is assistant professor at the Erasmus School of Philosophy at Erasmus University Rotterdam, as well as a research associate in the Environmental Health Initiative at the University of California, San Francisco. Henlin's research has been published in journals such as Annals of Internal Medicine, BMJ, American Journal of Public Health, Environmental Ethics, and many other journals. The international press regularly features Henlin's public health research. Henlin's interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research projects tackle major questions in philosophy of biology, environmental philosophy, and political philosophy. That's a nice combination, right? Henlin's epistemological inquiries into public health follow the via negativa of ethnology, trying to understand the systematic transmission of ignorance. Right, and that's one of the things that I'm interested in. How do we stop the transmission of ignorance? Henlin earned a PhD in philosophy, magna cum laude, at the University of Kiel, Germany in 2015. He holds degrees from the University of California, Berkeley, UCLA, and the London School of Economics, and held postdoctoral research fellowships at the University of Vienna and the University of California, San Francisco. Henlin was designated a 2020 Brocher Foundation Fellow. His current research projects focus on the monographs, industrial epistemics, chronic disease and the corporate determinants of health, and interspecies politics, valuing difference in the biotic community. Okay. All right. So, yeah, this is one of the things I enjoy most in my life, to speak to people that I, I read some of your work. I know you have a lot to say. Uh, I know we could probably go anywhere in this conversation, mm -hmm. but I don't really know where we're going to go. <laughs> and uh, I just really like that. I mean, it's really a privilege to speak to people like you. So I just want to start with that. I love speaking uh, with, with people like you too. So, nice. likewise. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, what, what's your favorite place in Plato's Cave? My favorite place? Yeah, is it the, the shadow realm where the people stay or the way upwards? way at the surface or going down again ah well i mean I, I see part of plato's the allegory of the cave as this um exercise in futility right 
Um, and, you know, as, as a student of Socrates, who was put to death or chose death rather than exile, um, I, I think that the allegory of the cave shows sort of like this prefiguration of Sisyphus, right? That you can try as much as you want to free people and that we cannot be freed by anybody um, if we're not willing to do so, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in, t- in terms of place, I think my favorite is going up. Mm-hmm. And first, you know, being blinded and not being able to see or make anything out and then having vision come in. Um, and then, you know, the... Yeah, I, I think for me, because that... that uh, that is sort of like the Buddha's uh, path, right? Of, of enlightenment coming into the light and it's a personal journey, right? And I think first and foremost, our paths of understanding, even though they're always informed by everybody, basically, like, you know, you had to get loose from your chains somehow. Yeah. And nobody gets loose from their chains by themselves. So generous, right? That's the myth of the self-made man, right? So first, let me disabuse that idea that like some heroic person like broke free, and, you know, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the initial inclination to turn away from the distraction, right? Um, and and we, we could talk about what is distraction. It's different for everybody, right? That's one of the... I would say paradoxes of uh, reality is that there's no one good thing or bad thing that we can stick our um, uh, staff in the ground and say, this is the way, this is not the way for everyone. Because how we've been programmed or engineered to, to be deceived and deceive ourselves. I see those as, uh, as a student of agnotology, the study of the, shadow side of epistemology, how ignorance is perpetuated in systems. Mm -hmm. I don't see this as a purely, you could say, um, a personal salvation that's possible or a personal damnation um, or as they did it to me, they're responsible or they're going to save me. So it's not a um, self or other binary. It's always a co uh, constitution. Yeah, we all share this world. Yeah, we all share this world, but we all interpret it differently. Right? That's the principle of hermeneutics. Whatever reality is, there are so many different levels of interpretation that are going on that yes, with intersubjectivity we can come to agree on certain things, but some of us for example, have color blindness. And so what is the actual state of things? How people without color blindness see things or people with color blindness? To put it in another way, how is the actual state of what a flower looks like? How we see it, how a bee sees it? And the answer is not one or the other. The actual factual reality is both and more and infinitely more. So, this notion of the 
the, the cave, when we're looking at this projection, right? Um, in Buddhism, we call it maya, any sort of illusion. Um, and we get wrapped into it. I was just reading today, showing some students, uh, Cosmopolis uh, the, uh, uh, by Stephen Tolman. And if, if I may, as, as a philosopher, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, read a, a short passage. Um, so he says here, um, in one sense, the idea of modernity coming to an end is paradoxical. For advertisers of consumer goods, to be modern is just to be new, to be the latest thing. Les dernières cris, superseding all similar things. Most of us are living in a consumption economy which never tires of novelty, and its motto, Semper Aliquid Novi, was already familiar to Paul of Tarsus. In this sense, the future brings us new and more, quote-unquote, modern things one after the other, so that modernity is the inexhaustible cornucopia of novelty. Right, and so... The idea that the more we chase entertainment, the more we chase novelty, the more we chase um, sort of uh, deus ex machina, the, the technological solution to our problems of uh, uh, environment, uh, human society, the human mind, uh, relations, the more we chase the next new thing, you know, as academics, citing the newest authors, the newest papers. Don't cite anything before 1980. Exactly. Yeah. We, we are instructed that the majority of our citations should be within the last five years, mm -hmm. especially in, you could say, the biomedical sciences. Um, and so what we uh, confront is we're chasing after something that we will never be able to catch up with. And so what that causes us to look at is what is the nature of the chase. René Girard, um, in his work, talks about mimetic desire, that we ascribe value and meaning to the things that we see the people around us ascribe meaning and value to. And I, I find this very important because this insinuates that we're not living in a bubble, that we, you know, as Socrates and, and the Buddha says, We did not develop our morals, our values, our um, ambitions, our appetites in a vacuum. Too generous. But instead, we were thrown into this world that already was telling us what to do. You know, some might call it the superego. Um, but we, we are deeply social animals. And that requires us to reflect on whether our current social configuration is giving us something that's life-affirming or life-denying, mm -hmm. right? And in the cave, I think it's fair to say that this uh, panini et circensi uh, that we're seeing, right, the bread and circuses, which keeps us barely alive, not thriving, but uh, what Agamben calls bare life, we're literally up against the wall. You know, we will make it through the day, We will be entertained and uh, awestruck, but we will be paralyzed into neglecting 99% of who we are and our possibility. 
And Socrates always comes back to this question of, well, who are you? Do you know who you are? And the metaphor of peeling away the layers of an onion, right, or taking off a knight's armor is appropriate to understand how we've been encrusted with certain uh, ways of beings and habit patterns and programs uh, uh, that prevent us from um, actually understanding who we are in uh, the full dimensions of the, the, the term. Um, I always make this distinction between uh, you know, what we often take to be human nature in industrialized society, you know, that, that, of, um, that of Hobbes uh, and um, Machiavelli that were you know, just nasty uh, selfish animals. And so we have to be uh, disciplined and we have to have a strong um, uh, sort of patriarchal state, uh, which tells us what to do uh, because we're not capable of doing that ourselves, yeah. the, the masses. Um, and, and the sense of entitlement, uh, blue blood, you know, all, all of these familiar tropes. And then the work of, um, uh, you could say, Rutger um, Brechmann right? With the de, Meistermens and Doha, uh, humankind, right? Yeah. Or if you look at the work of David Graeber and David Wengrove in The Dawn of Everything, where they make very clear that this idea that we are competitive and zero-sum game-seeking uh, by nature is not our nature at all. But what happens, basically, when you throw a primate into a cage and create a system of artificial scarcity in which then you get this, uh, you could say, untoward competition, right? That's self-devouring and other devouring and devouring our earth. And, and I, I think it's quite interesting when you look outside of these situations of enforced artificial scarcity, that if you ask anybody how you want to live, they say, well, I want neighbors that I love and trust and who, you know, our kids can play together and that uh, we can share things. And um, I want um, to be able to work with people who I trust and respect. And I don't have to worry about backstabbing or you know, any of these things. Spend time with the people that you love. Yeah. Work on things that inspire you. Exactly. Make some music, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And this is inherently cooperative. Right. So, and it's it's everywhere. It's not scarce. Absolutely. And Franz de Waal um, shows very clearly in his work the uh, the primatologist uh, and philosopher Franz de Waal that um, bonobos, for for instance, are um, very cooperative, and even chimpanzees in non scarcity situations are highly uh, uh, cooperative, and in fact, actually choose their alpha male. Uh, leaders um, through uh, cooperative um, intersex planning, right? So they promote sometimes betas to alpha uh, because they want somebody that is cooperative, right? And, and so when I think of Plato's cave, um, you know, the, the notion of trying to convince others of the insights that we have, that to me is, is the most tragic, Right. Yeah. The most tragic aspect. And in my personal life um, as an academic uh, at a large research institution, I've also experienced that tragedy, right? Where 
Um, everybody, for example, you know, thinks that they're an expert at politics. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks that they're a philosopher. Everybody thinks that they know about certain things because it's part of the, uh, the milieu of our media culture. And yet, um, you know, there are certain things that only a lifetime of dedication can reveal. And I'm not saying that this is some um, arcane or esoteric knowledge. Um, I mean, I teach it to my students every semester. But the notion that our preferences and um, our ways of understanding are somehow intrinsically true just by virtue of us believing in them is very hard to shake. Yeah. Right. So it sounds like you're saying two things about Plato's cave, like what is the, the makeup of the cave? One is that if everything needs to be new, <laughs> it means that uh, the moment you have a you buy a phone, it's new, right? I buy it, but next year it's not new anymore. So I need a new one. So if this is in our consciousness, it means that we, yeah, well, what does it mean for memory? How far back does our memory go? How much can we build on, for instance, uh, let's say the knowledge of my grandfather who passed away a few years ago, but who lives in a very different world than I did, but probably has some things uh, that he could tell me right now that would be very valuable with me, even though he's, he's not caught up. So like how far... How far does the bubble extend back into time at this moment? And the other one, I think, has to do with um, you make people feel that there's something at stake. So in their social status or uh, in their relationship or something like that, this is what you have to fight for today. So you, you're, you're distracted because you cannot focus your attention on those yeah, long-term goals, these practices that you, why would you sit and meditate every day for an hour for 10 years? If, you know, if you calculate the meaning of this hour and what you could do with that in, in terms of competition or honing your skills in, in other things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that would be the third thing is that you say there's a value in um, uh, developing something over longer periods of time. Yeah, the, the question of uh, memory, institutional memory, of uh, commitment and practice. Um, you know, there's this dictum <clears throat> um, where, you know, society is on a good track when you have old men who plant trees mm -hmm. whose shade they will not enjoy. Right. Right. And this, up until quite recently, when we sort of entered the era of greed um, in the last hundred years, uh, This was uh, a principle, a universal principle, I would say worldwide, that you live in connection to your ancestors mm -hmm. and to the future. Edmund Burke, the conservative British senator and political philosopher in the UK, he wrote about that we are part of an intergenerational contract. The things we care about only are valuable to us because we believe that they, we want them to be carried on to the future. Look at philanthropy. People who care about certain things, who really want those things to be studied, learned about, looked at, examined, enjoyed in perpetuity, right? So what the fuck are we doing 
with climate change. We are throwing away everything we care about because we're basically saying we don't care about five years from now. Look at AI. We don't care what happens next. We're happy to just piss it all down the toilet uh, to make an extra buck now or because we don't know how to stop this uh, mega machine, this juggernaut, this demon that is possessing us and has us by the throat. Yeah. Like it, there's not a single logical chain in the whole thing that makes sense. But isn't that the, the, the catch 22? Because we, we, it's a crisis of the imagination, right? Of imagining uh, future generations or a future world or even any alternative to capitalism or the way the world works. But one of the ways you, you get to imagine is when uh, the older generations tell stories to you and you start to dream and you start to have all these imaginations. But we don't really have that so much anymore. So um, I guess my I, I read so I read some of your things and and I'm I mean you're very clear about what's going on. Uh, you don't mince words about it, and it's important to address this. And in some episodes before I, I talk to a climate, don't if you want to be happy. Don't talk to a climate scientist. <laughs> I talked to yeah, Chris Julian, to Hannah Prince, who's in, into law, and uh, to geologists. And I've had these conversations. And I personally, I can only have these conversations because I have a lot of hope. But otherwise, I would also get depressed. But I'm not depressed. I'm actually very happy. But one of the main things I thought about, how do we... Because I do think there's a value in you must point, keep pointing to that, to what's going on. But it's like, okay, if, you know, if we're falling off a cliff or, or, you know, in a ship headed towards an iceberg, you can talk about it as long as you want, but the ship keeps on going forward. And so if we take our attention off it, even for a split second, you know, the ship hits it. It's like a a friend of mine recently um, made the analogy, um, and actually he, he was saying this is why he quit academia. Because, you know, you're, you're pushing this system um, uh, to make change, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's social, environmental, and the, it's like rolling a boulder uphill. Yeah. And the moment you let up, the boulder just pulls right back down to where it was when you began. And you have to start the process uh, anew. Um, and so I, I think that it's this attention to you know, this inertia that we have from an industrial system, which uh, believed that instrumi- instrumentalizing everything um, for the sake of immediate gain in a very, the most reductive constrained way you could possibly imagine it was somehow worthwhile, good, or um, worth doing. And when you scale that up globally, um, and you realize that it's based on slavery and pollution mm-hmm. at all levels, fractally. Yeah. That, you know, this system has a lot of inertia behind it. And so as we know from system science, if you want to change a system that has a lot of inertia, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to shift directions, right? And so that's what we're doing right now. And so that's what we're doing right now globally in a million different ways, trillions of different ways. Um, I always uh, say that, you know, we, how did we get here? How did we get to this situation uh, right now? 
it was a death by a hundred trillion cuts, right? Little razor yeah, yeah. blades in our skin. Um, so how are we going to get out of it? Well, it's going to have to be, uh, you know, a uh, hundred trillion uh, virtuous actions of uh, healing and mending. And, and this isn't going to bring us back to any restored place, but it, it's like a drug addict. This yeah. is rehabilitation. Well, addiction, I think, is the most appropriate paradigm for <laughs> to understand where we are right now, right? As an addiction researcher, I must agree Oh, you are an that. addiction researcher as well, yeah. I, so I wanted, so this, I just want to, what I'm hoping also for my own sake is like to answer this question of how do we get beyond cynicism? Because it seems that people switch very quickly from, oh, nothing is going on. It's alarmist. Okay. They start actually learning about the science or they, they experience a heat wave or something like that. And then boom, it we're all doomed. And what does it matter anyway? And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I can tell, I've been studying it. I can tell you, and you know them too, like, the, you know, the bingo. What about China? Uh, let's play some bingo for a while. Okay, what do we have? What about China? If we don't do it, they will. Yeah. Who's going to stop first? Like, we don't want to give up our economic yeah. advantage. What are we? We are only a small country. I'm only a small uh, person. It's too late anyway. Uh, the climate has always been changing. Uh, and it just goes on and on and on. And um, but I guess it's it's good that it comes up, right? Because at least people are talking about. It. Yeah, we have to. I mean, this is a. If you look at the twelve step program, for mm-hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous. All right. You know, the first step is admit, admitting you have a problem, and then you have to voice your demons. Like if if you have doubts and you try to suppress them, they're just going to uh, steal your energy yeah. and stop you from from acting. Right. So I see doomerism and denial as two sides of the same misbegotten coin, mm-hmm. right? They're both equally useless um, in different ways, right? <laughs> but yeah, they're, but yeah. they're the opposite of what's actually needed, and that is um, grieving for the earth, as one of my mentors, Joanna Macy, teaches in her re- work that reconnects. We, we, you know, to get in touch with our emotions and our what she calls our climate grief, our grief for the earth, allows us to realize how much we love life, right? That's what it's all about. Grief occurs because there's love. Yeah. And connecting back with that love is what makes us more alive as individuals, as groups, as nations, as, as a planetary uh, 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 yeah, uh, collective. So you're saying yeah. that through grief, you also experience the love that we have for, for life. That yeah. is there. We reconnect yeah. with the fact that it's an amazing blessing to be alive and how beautifully intricate and complex and loving our biosphere is, how ecosystems are a sign yeah. of uh, they are more than a sum of their parts. They are acts of generosity. One organism's uh, waste becomes another organism's food. There is nothing wasted. There's nothing instrumentalized. There's yeah. no rush. There is no leaving people behind. There is no, um, you know, sacrificing uh, this group for the sake of another group. None of that exists, except very recently, historically, um, in, in a subset of humans who have then globalized a very dysfunctional uh, colonial practice. Yeah. That can be otherwise. Mm-hmm. 
has been otherwise and will be otherwise. Yeah, I mean, the Earth is amazing, right? Just to think that it was like basically an ice planet for what millions and millions of years and it just restored balance again. So, of course, the Earth will restore balance again as well, right? Yain. I mean, I, I do not find solace in, you know, this argument that for many years, you know, I heard of like, you know, the Earth will be fine. Like, we need to worry about ourselves. Um, because if you look at secession ecology, mm -hmm. so how when, uh, you know, you have like a new area that species um, encounter, it takes a lot of time and effort to sort of uh, sow the soil and mature the area such that you get the complexity that we see in the Amazon or where I come yeah. from at the redwoods in California. You know, these really ancient forests um, that have are teeming with life. Uh, you know, we call it biodiversity, but, you know, that's really, I, I would say just, um, you know, it's not about the number of species alone. It's about the intricacies of the relations. So, yeah, so I, I, intelligence. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I research a lot in my work um, how culture occurs. You know, we talk about animal cultures, like mm -hmm. uh, non-human animal cultures, but there's also cultures in ecosystems and uh, trees, the plants, bacteria, fungi, how they adapt and they keep out pathogens. Yeah. Right, so that they keep out these opportunistic rent ranchier seeking organisms that just want to take and take and take and steal. They are, you could say, anti capitalistic by design, um, in, in the sense that they don't let a specific organism come in and dominate to the detriment of all. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens, of course, when an organism does succeed in doing that? It eats everything. And then there's nothing left to eat and its population levels plummet to near zero. Yeah. And then there's a space and then there will be nothing for a while and something new will come. Yeah, so, yeah. But even if we're talking about the earth will be fine, we're talking, of course, it, about it, tens of thousands of years at the well, minimum and yeah. millions of years. Uh, yeah, more exactly. Probably. Yeah. I mean, in terms of speciation, we're talking about many millions of years um, for, for the type of complexity that we enjoy around, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and, and it's, I don't think it's just about that. Like, I, I think that we are as a species, you know, part of everything and that we're not, you know, just a cancer on the earth. Um, you know, we're, we're neither just like any other species. We're neither, you know, um, angels or demons. Mm -hmm. We have the potential to be either, but most of the time we're just somewhere in the middle. We're just human. Yeah. You know, and so this is part of like a larger strategy I have of trying to create or uh, and organize societal design to not require us to be heroes or more than human in order to make things go well. Mm -hmm. We need to understand um, how human psychology and sociology work, uh, evolutionary anthropology, and design our systems ecologically to uh, guide us in ways that uh, allow things to be easy for us where we're at, mm -hmm. not to only have them be easy if we sort of uh, adopt some sort of heroic posture of being, you know, the diamond in the rough who's able to, uh, you know, some like ro some rocky American action film, like against all odds, you know, beat the slum culture and this and that and the pollution in order to, you know, become, uh, yeah, uh, uh, decent member of society. No, we need to make 
meaning and purpose at the center of every human being's opportunity. And we need to culture, cultivate that and nurture that every step of the way. You know, look what happens when you don't, don't do that. Look at the U.S. You have shootings left and right. And these are, you know, shootings of despair, deaths of despair. We know worldwide, especially post-corona and in uh, the global north, uh, suicide and depression are uh, quickly becoming, um, you know, uh, major uh, causes of death. Yeah, one of my favorite news bits from the United States is that we had Trump was arrested in every single way. So he announced that he was going to get arrested. Then there was a crowd around the, the building. I think it was Tuesday or something. But there were all journalists. So there were all the journalists were ready for the event. Then artificial intelligence, someone created ex- the actual news photos and everything. So we could just say it happened, right? Ex- the, the only thing, it didn't actually happen. But all the other parts of it were already present. So what does that mean for you? Well, uh, that's that's the important that's what is important. At the the important thing is not whether. So I, I make a distinction between reality and actuality. So, reality is what you experience. If you see this photo of Trump getting arrested in a heroic fashion, you have this feeling like he's the hero, and you know, uh, injustice is being do- done to him. This feeling that I I, I don't get it, but I guess a Trump supporter could get it. This feeling is real because you really experience it, but he didn't actually get arrested. So I think one of the things that Socrates did and what, but also what you are doing in, in your context is asking, but okay, but what is actually happening? So as an example uh, from your article, uh, so many people say it's not possible, it's not rea- realistic to change our ways in face of the climate crisis. But you're saying, yeah, but look at Corona. We did it already. Yeah. It's possible. So you can say it's not possible because it is possible. And actually, we even have more costs to do it at this moment. Yeah. And then you can talk about what are the reasons that it doesn't happen. But actually, you know, all the bullshit and all the images, everything inside. Yeah, we can just do it. We could decide it tomorrow. It's costing us more not to take action on climate change than it would to take massive action right now. Yeah. Right. Per year. I mean, the U.S. alone last year had 1.47% of its population displaced Mm -hmm. over a trillion dollars in a single country in climate uh, catastrophe related damages. I mean, that's unreal. You know, what we pay annually for wars, which are, I would say, totally avoidable, but that's a whole different subject. Um, If we took just a small portion of that would easily uh, take care of all global Paris commitments. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we took a larger portion of that, because uh, about 10% of all global GDP goes to war annually. Mm-hmm. And if we took 5% of global GDP, uh, so 5% away from war, that would cover all SDGs, all the sustainable development goals. And to me, this is, cracks me up, right? Like I, I get, <laughs> I, I get chuffed that we have made the decision somewhere um, along the line as, as a, a global society that it makes more sense to invest in war than it does to um, take care of the uh, biosphere, which supports all life. Yeah. Um, even as every year, 
you know, our food is getting more expensive because uh, uh, climate uh, disruption is making our seasons erratic and uh, is wiping out harvests worldwide. Um, you know, we, we think we have problems now. Just just wait in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you think that this is, uh, you know, that we can wait a second on climate change. You know, e- every second that ticks by, we are um, sort of doubling down on the horrors that all of us will experience. And the rich, too. I mean, Douglas Rushkoff has a great book called The Survival of the Richest. And he talks about how the ultra-rich elites have this half-baked idea, this half-baked logic that they somehow will go to Mars, go to their island, their bat cave in New yeah. Zealand, and they will divorce themselves from humanity. <laughs> yeah. And while everybody else burns and suffers, they will be drinking martinis uh, on, you know, on the beach front. Yeah, but that's uh, Dr. Strangelove. Uh, that movie has been made already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just, I want to get back to this, but just to pass, because, okay, this is, you see what's going on, but you see, so we, we are all clear what the problem is. We all know, uh, we have all the science we need. We have all the uh, resources we need. We have all the policies we need. We have all the technology. We don't need to invent the technology to black, to, to block the sun, to get us out of this, but we have everything we need. But at the same time, so I don't know if you have this experience as well, then you're talking to somebody educated, someone who has maybe power to change things, and you're having conversations about um, switching to a vegetarian diet as a standard, or um, what about China? Or So how do you, because those things I cannot really... I spoke to Lee McIntyre last. Uh, do you know him? He's, he wrote this book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, and he puts a lot of emphasis on making a connection and also kind of controlling your emotions. And we also spoke about martial arts because we're both, well, amateurs, but um, that's, that's important to kind of not be, you know, placed off center by your emotions and everything like that. So it's kind of a training as well. Mm-hmm. But it's still this absurd situation where you're saying well we have to change everything basically on a on a on a planetary level but i'm speaking to you about whether we should have a vegetarian lunch or whether should we should this very small thing so how how do you experience do you experience situations like that and every day yeah every so day. How, how does that feel with you and how do you uh stay sane i guess well i i would say the short answer is i don't i, I don't think any of us are insane Uh, are, are like Latour said, you know, we have all these different uh, crazy people now. Yeah, I, types I, of insanity. I, I think that you know, Krishnamurti said, uh, "It's it's no act of uh, um, uh, sanity to be well adjusted to an insane society." Yeah, our society is insane at this point, and it's producing insanity uh, and suffering. For me, they're the same thing. You know, two facets of the same uh, visage. Um, but we are creating unnecessary suffering and <laughs> insanity by virtue of instability, ins- insecurity. And how do we create more instability and insecurity? We undermine the fecundity, the richness that the natural world provides. We undermine the stability of ecosystems. The war in Syria in some significant ways, was spawned by a drought. Yeah. 
For sure. And so if Europe cares about immigrants, if you're right wing, um, uh, 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 how do you say, xenophobe in Europe, you should really care about climate change. You right. should you should be yeah. the vegetarian uh, uh, bicycle riding uh, heat pump installing um, uh, citizen uh, urging to get rid of cars in your city because you don't want immigration. Now, of course, I don't yeah. agree with that. I think uh, you know having the chickens come home to roost is is just part of history. Um, but uh, and, and I am very much in favor of a contract and converge um, carbon budget. Right where uh, the global north contracts its CO two uh, uh, use and converges with the sustainable level with the global south, so that there's not this huge difference, uh, say between uh, the Netherlands, where your average uh, Dutch uh, citizen uh, is uh, consuming um, and and spewing out uh, uh, forty to eighty times as much CO two as your average Bangladeshi. Mm-hmm. And of course, what I always hear in response is, yeah, but you want to live like uh, your average Bangladeshi? It's like, well, I don't think we need to be consuming as much as we do. Uh-huh. I don't think we need to be polluting as much as we do. I think that we could learn a lot from uh, how Bangladeshi society is resilient in the face of crises and how they help each other out when they have uh, these you know, uh, very regular climate catastrophes that happen because they're also lowlands but don't have the world's uh, best hydrologists like we do. Yeah. But as Rutger Brechmann said in his book, Het Waterkommt, uh, it is a matter of inevitability. You know, we are having this conversation at a university uh, that's eight meters below sea level. Mm-hmm. You know, I, while I hope and pray that the world will regain its sanity and drink from a different well and, and have, have some different uh, assumptions about what we can do with the yeah. world. Um, on our current trajectory, this university will be underwater. Yeah, exactly. But well, one of the things, it, it doesn't give me exactly hope, but the thing is that we are now at, what, 1.2 or something. And before we get to 1.5, we will experience a 1.3 and a 1.4 world. And the drought, you know... You, you mean in, um, you mean in uh, meters of sea level? Rise? Well, sea level rise is more long term, right? But more in weather. I, I, I don't know whether that's true, to be honest, because if you look at uh, some data, we, we see a um, non-linear sort of dose response. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of the measurements, they are happening much faster than anyone predicted. Which well, is there was actually yeah, a study today, I th- uh, yesterday, I think about that. Uh, that in, in, in uh, the North Sea is rising faster than we think. So, so I think this is fascinating because what it tells us is. We have been trying to delay, which is a form of denial, <laughs> as yeah. Michael Mann says, uh, soft denial, he calls it. We have been trying to delay and do the absolute minimum to uh, change any of the major ways in which we're destroying our environment, yeah. like fossil fuels, uh, unsustainable farming, etc., um, in order to keep business as usual going. Right. So we have been trying to do the very minimum, but... The, there's no buffer room. Yeah. And what we're finding is the threshold that we thought was the crucial threshold is actually coming way sooner than we anticipated. Yeah. And we're going to continue in the next year 
five years, ten years, if because we, if we, we go that long. Yeah. <laughs> because to, we, to don't, we don't really have, have a good basic understanding of the... Comp- we know that the Earth systems are very complex, but we also know that we're just starting to understand it. So we don't really... I mean, we understand a lot already, but this... this but this is all also about phase change, right? Going back to your yeah. initial uh, uh, allegory of, uh, of the cave, we're still in the cave. And yeah. so the logic and the science, in fact, that we're doing is cave logic and cave science. But in fact, the cave is caving in. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know how in the cave, you know, in the first stage he gets released and then turned around and then he has pointed out all the objects in front of the fire, but he still doesn't, he only wants to go back to his seat. And if that, if that's, if he succeeds, I think it says it literally like that. If he succeeds, he just goes back to his seat and then he, it's all a bad dream. Yeah. But exactly. that's, uh, maybe that's like the stage we're at, right? Like we're, we're at people the bad are, dream But stage. people are pointing like, but okay, look what's going on. But these are not even the objects themselves. These are the, you know, these are the statues carried in front of, we're not even walking to the surface or something. Yeah, it's, it's still, so, I mean, the question is, what happens when the projection stops, right? Or, like the internet stops and your, your image glitches and stands still. Yeah. What happens? People don't know what to do. Eventually they'll get up. Right. But, uh, you know, there's this moment where you expect you're so, um, you have, you're so geared in to this process. There's so much inertia. You're like, wait a minute. Like what's, what's going on? I, I will just keep on watching because it's the movement, right? It's the, like I, I said, the, the, the illusion, yeah. And the movement, the novelty, as I read about at the beginning, um, that keeps us entranced, right? And so I, I like to think about this in theological terms because I believe that it's the most faithful way to understand what's actually going on psychologically. Why haven't we made the change that we needed? We knew 30 years ago we've uh, produced more CO2 since the first IPCC report in 1990 mm-hmm. than in the entire history of humanity prior right? so yeah just to because what you're um we're in the, the diagnosis of the so you the diagnosis is is clear i think it's not it doesn't make us happy but it's pretty clear i i, I, um, mean, I don't think it's clear to to, to everybody though no. because i think some people are s- still watching the screen and saying this is the only game in town why are you trying to disrupt? Sure, my movie? yeah. So that's so that's why because I, I'm I'm trying to get somewhere myself. I hope you can help me. So, so one one part is the question I ask. Okay, so you are speaking with someone like that, but I don't want to. It's we have to be careful to phrase it like that because it doesn't mean like someone is uh, stupid or something like that. It, no, actually, many times they're very smart, highly educated, caring people, and they care about something and. One of the things I think to explain it is that um, uh, whatever we say threatens something. If you have children, for instance, it tr- if, if someone starts to say, hey, but what about uh, in when your child is 50 years old? I mean, uh, you don't want to think about that, yeah. right? So I understand people don't want to be thinking about it. But this one, okay, having these kind of conversations and being in between the, like the, let's say the actuality and the reality. But the other part is, okay, but how do we get out because we can move around in this situation and we can explore it and we can understand it. But I think we pretty much understand it. 
And not every, but I, I'm saying you and me and, and the experts who've looked at it and then analyzed yeah. it and S- analyzed sci- scientists and the, the uh, psychologists yeah, and sure. and you can look at the role of Exxon who who knew all this. You can look at how politics works and populism uh, distraction. But okay, okay, okay. How do we get out of this? Uh, what's the way out? Yeah, nobody has f- figured that one out yet. No, uh, there's a lot of people trying, and a lot of people I know personally who are have dedicated their lives to it, including myself. And a lot of these people are my friends who I deeply trust, who are world-class scientists, uh, activists, thinkers, uh, you know, change makers, innovators, entrepreneurs, you name it. Yeah. Um, poets, right? Because we, we need the artists, contrary to Plato, right? Um, I, I think that you know, finding new narratives, finding new ways to meet our needs is the basic sort of game A strategy. Right? Mm-hmm. That's how we um, make the system move within the existing system. Game B is realizing that our our system, no matter how we manage it, is completely corrupt um, in every sense of the term and unsustainable in every sense of the term and moving to whatever comes next. Some people call it ecological civilization, yeah. right? So um, ecological civilization is not game A, it's game B. But most people at this point, out of pragmatism, pure strategy, and I'm doing this myself, we're focusing on how to take this um, vicious circle, this uh, race to the bottom, and change the incentives to make it a race to the top, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's no easy thing, but it's easier than converting uh, what we have now to uh, a planetary civilization or ecological civilization. Yeah, because the solution needs to come at the planetary level, pretty As, much, absolutely. right? Whatever solution there is. Absolutely. Yeah. But what I'm talking about with planetary civilization or ecological civilization is a change state as different from gas to liquid to solid. I'm talking about a change that drastic. Yeah, but then you're talking also about consciousness. Um, yeah, but consciousness is not divorced from materiality. And this is something that, um, you know, the two go together. And when people talk about, oh, we just need to change the structures. Yeah, well, if people aren't um, behind these new things, nobody will use them or people ridicule them or they'll try to destroy them, right? So if you don't have the consciousness caught up with your material technological change Uh or de-technological change. Um, On the other hand, if it doesn't matter like how advanced your consciousness is, which it obviously isn't from reading any of our news media or social media, um, you know. Uh, but if your consciousness is is changing, your material structures will have to change, or the consciousness won't be able to change beyond a very limited extent. So basically, what I'm saying is, we all are very disabled at this point in history. We're only using. Um, uh, even our best scientists, there, there are no geniuses beyond a certain level because we cannot get there mm-hmm. with where our planet is at um, in terms of the uh, effects that are happening. In a different state, right, this is going back to the metaphor of the change state uh, between liquid, solid, gas, plasma, etc. Um, when we change states, everything changes. And sometimes this is a very rapid thing. We are not at that tipping point yet. No. We're, we're far from it. We're still very much an entrenchment resistance. It's uh, the last fling of a, 
a, a dying system that's basically throwing out all of its firepower. Yeah, fighting for its survival. Yeah, but yeah. what is it? There's no thing that's surviving. That's the funniest thing. So here's where we get actually to the nub of the issue. This is identification and attachment, right? Mm -hmm. So we have uh, identities uh, of ourselves as a web of relations with uh, culture, people, institutions, uh, ideologies. And the more attached we are to these things, the more everything suffers. You know, every religion teaches this. Mm -hmm. Like freedom, the way out is letting go of our attachments to these things. Yeah. Now, what happens when you have... Um, a certain set of people, let's call them scientists, uh, actively trying to disattach from some of uh, their attachments, identity attachments. Another group that's trying to double down because they're scared. Yeah. Like, if you look at the research, like the real snowflakes are not people who are climate activists or scientists. They're actually people who are very afraid of change. And so they're so afraid that they arm themselves to the teeth, which is a, a, a fear mechanism, right? It's a defensive mechanism to try to cope with the situation where you think that you, you are existentially threatened when really what's all that's being threatened is um, maybe uh, your ideology, your belief, or uh, exchanging a certain material item. Yeah, um, maybe, yeah, that's, that's right, because... And the thing is, you can also see that probably the things that they're attached to, they would probably be happy if they didn't have them. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is because they're like, also a, a, a cage, right? Yeah. They're also um, an, an illusion that, well, like an addiction, right? There's something that they think they absolutely need that. I mean, I was a smoker for smoking tobacco for many years. It took me about uh, four or five years to quit. Uh, I guess I sh that's why I never started experiment with any other drugs because I'm probably prone to addiction. But the thing was, it felt like uh, if I didn't, if I would actually quit, uh, yeah, everything would end. Because, for instance, what would I do during a break or something or during a phone call or something like that? And I couldn't imagine it. So... It, I mean, you couldn't imagine life without yeah. identifying as well. A the, the thing that comes up is yeah, exactly that, and that's actually the 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 thing that got me to quit is this. I well, I don't remember the title. If it was a small book, and it it said you don't have to stop smoking, you have to stop being a smoker. I think okay, good. <laughs> so then it said stop being a smoker first. You can smoke for a little bit longer, but after a while you quit. And then the other part was. Um, someone who said, okay, what you should do is uh, in the morning, so when you just wake up, it's the longest time you haven't smoked because you were sleeping, and uh, open the window and take some deep breaths. And then fine, you know, smoke a cigarette. But the thing is, your body will get to know the difference because that's also we don't feel anymore, right? We don't feel uh, the difference between what it is like to be well, to be healthy, and to be sick. So we think that being well is not having to think about uh, being busy with how sick you are or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. this is the, the shifting baselines problem, yeah. right? Both with uh, our ecology, where we think like this is how things should be, right? Yeah. And Catherine McKinnon, she calls this the 10% planet. We're living with 10% of the 
fecundity of nature mm-hmm. that we once had just a few hundred years ago where you know we had wild horses running around their bellies were uh, purple uh, from the berries that were everywhere yeah. right? there was just so much abundance everywhere right and in philosophy we also call this the um, uh, adaptive preferences where we might not want something but once we sort of get it hooked on it we can't imagine our life without it and so we you know, identify with that so much uh, as part of ourselves that without it, we feel like we would be empty. Our lives would be meaningless, um, that we fear for our lives. If we don't have the cigarette, the car, uh, the fossil fuels, whatever it is, same, same. It it doesn't matter. Um, uh, A good friend of mine, uh, um, David Presti at UC Berkeley, a professor um, uh, of neuroscience, his wrote an article called, you know, this is your brain on fossil fuels. Mm. Uh, back in the 1980s, when I was a kid, had these commercials in the U.S. about this is your brain on drugs. And yeah, yeah. Like an egg frying on a pan. Oh, that's and, great. you know, he talks about basically everything we experience, the, the whole haste and speed and speeding up of society, which also, you know, creates uh, chronic fatigue, break, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do they call it? Um, yeah, uh, mental breakdowns and burnout, um, depression. Uh, it is a result of fossil fuels, mm-hmm. quite directly. Without fossil fuels, we wouldn't have uh, been able to be so inundated with having to do so many things uh, that we would get to that state. And that at this point, we identify so much with the state as human nature rather than as human conditioned. Um, that we feel that if we took this away, it would like take a chunk of our heart out. So it would be like taking an organ out of our body. Um, People are literally saying, when I write opinion pieces sometimes to try to also tease out some of these things, and they're saying, well, but uh, if you would do that, uh, if you would do, for instance, what Extinction Rebellion is demanding, society would col- collapse. The economy would collapse, and then we don't have anything. So mm-hmm. there, there's this. So, so that's an all or nothing. Yeah. Sort of like this way or the highway. So better to slow down gradually. Well, I tried this with smoking. Like, oh yeah, I'll only smoke at uh, you know in weekends or. It's all the. Addiction. Did that work? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but it's all the addiction. The, the, the argument of all or nothing. You know, anytime somebody gives you a ultimatum like that, it's coming from a place of powerlessness. Yeah. It's coming from a place of fear. Right. Like in a relationship, like if you leave me, you're not going to be happy for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Like either you do this or I'm going to leave. Yeah. Right. When you give such propositions to people, first of all, most of the time they're going to leave. Um, and, and second of all, what it does is you're forcing a decision by trying to take out all the stops. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's an act of violence in a way. Um, but it's also not realizing that that's, not how the situation is naturally flowing or developing, yeah. Yeah. right? If you know the psychology, positive psychology of Szanski Mahali, don't know it. Flow state, right? Oh yeah. Flow state is where um, ease and challenge are equally met, mm-hmm. right? And you know when people feel challenged but they don't feel the ease, there's a tendency to shrivel up and you know either go back to your cave 
or to break out the guns and try to, you know, kill the person who's trying to, um, you know, uh, um, break you away from the thing you're identifying with as part of you, right? Existential risk, yeah. right? There's the idea that this is a th- threat to my life. You know, if, if I'm a coffee addict in the most extreme and you say, okay, no more coffee, you know, it's stopping because, uh, hey, um, <laughs> we, we can't get coffee from uh, Africa or uh, Latin America anymore because the uh, currents uh, on the um, oceans have changed so substantially that shipping has to stop. Mm-hmm. Sorry, which is a very probable thing in the future. If I'm a coffee addict, I will feel that part of my my self, however I can see that, is being threatened. Mm-hmm. And I will try to do whatever I can to uh, deal with that because my my, recept- my neuroreceptors, as well as uh, other receptors, all in my body that have become accustomed to the stimuli, um, they are in withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about the symptoms of withdrawal just for a second. And that's where we're at right now. We're in a society that has, you know, really mainlined uh, fossil fuels for a hundred years before that was whale blubber, right? Mm-hmm. And coal. But we, we really have mainlined fossil fuels uh, for a hundred years and now we're being told to stop. And we're trying to stop little by little, but we're actually every year consuming more fossil fuels than the previous year. You know, it's yeah. it's this, and a little by little would have been viable if we started uh, thirty years 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. When so we, now is I mean, you've, I'm sure you've heard about the farmer protests and everything in the Netherlands. So I also understand that for people, uh, for a lot of people, it can feel like all of a sudden this is a big problem. I mean, first of all, how big a problem if, is it if I didn't hear about it before? And now suddenly we have to change and uh, can we do it slowly? And There's incredulity, yeah. but there's also a feeling of betrayal, right? Yeah, so, but so I if mean, we, a justified we, feeling of betrayal. I that's what say. I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so if that's, that's precisely what I'm saying. Um, if our government has been complicit in climate change denial uh, and uh, completely, you know, alternative facts and uh, not being honest with the, the situation that we're in as a um, half of our country is below the sea level and not being honest with those facts because, uh, you know, it was inconvenient for one reason or another and suppressed those facts mm-hmm. and not only suppressed the facts, but didn't act on it in any appropriate way. And now it says all of a sudden, okay, we need to make changes. And then completely gaffs the way to do it instead of asking people, okay, what do you think that needs to be done? The, the, this is these, this is where we need to get to. How do we propose that needs to do that? You have bottom-up ideas, people working together. Yeah. You have uh, empowerment of farmers. That's not how this was done. No, and you have to start, but this is still not done. So um, normally, if you have different scenarios, you you uh, we had that in Corona. They said, okay. We, we think we should do all the social distancing and working from home and all that stuff because if we don't do it, this is what will happen, like the, the uh, healthcare system might collapse. But that's not... So um, I'm just thinking how you phrased it before. The climate is, is, an either, is presented as an either-or game. 
So we have now to do everything, otherwise everything will fail. But that's not true. So you have these different pathways. We have the path we can still uh, maybe, I don't know, but we still maybe have a small chance to get to one and a half degrees. But okay, if we say, okay, we don't want to do that, we don't, okay, then the next step is what about two degrees? But, or, or what about 1.6 degrees? I mean, I think one of the, yeah. the problems of sort of climate um, policy has been to have these huge discrete things instead of say, no, we need to stop things as soon as possible right now. Yeah. Not 2030, not 2050, right now at 1.2 as much as we can. Mm-hmm. And then, you you know, it's, it's like... <clears throat> Uh, we're pulling on a rope. He's standing up now and pretending he's pulling on a rope. <laughs> you know, if you're in a tug of war, yeah, you every centimeter you give, you grit your teeth and you don't give in. Yeah, you know, you keep on fighting. You, you for fight for your, your life. life. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. we're all fighting for our lives. We're yeah. fighting for the lives of our children and our children's children. Yeah, and and that's what we're fighting for. And it's we're not fighting against anybody. We're fighting against human ignorance which is in everybody. And that's like one of the things I study, right? It's like none of us are free from this. And like, that's why I refuse to take sort of an elitist position because we've all been complicit and duped into this in various ways. We all, you know, I I have friends of mine who have to remind me, you know, I I buy a new cell phone. They're like, actually, I buy all my cell phones used because there's a lot of people who just get a cell phone, return it after a six days or something, mm-hmm. you know, or a week. And uh, then, you know, they can't sell it again yeah. as new. So it's used and they would throw it away otherwise. Yeah. And so I need my community of friends to keep me honest about the ways that I've been caught up in this uh, culture where I think that I need this thing in order to uh, survive or get ahead. You know, this is Nietzsche. Nietzsche's idea of being clever which he said is the worst thing ever, right? So there's, like you said, there's lots of smart people. Yeah, and all, a lot of us smart people are trying to outsmart each other. Mm-hmm. And that is a zero-sum game of based on competition. It's Moloch, right? It's not going to get us out of this situation. We cannot rely on zero-sum games any longer or, or survival of the richest games where we say, okay, well, you know, you ignorant people over there are going to suffer, but I'm going to go off on my boat and or what, whatever the excuses. The idea that, you know, Bruno Latour, who you mentioned in his book Down to Earth, he says, you know, the idea that we could uh, opt out of our humanity mm-hmm. and of our solidarity with our species, that's the original sin. Yeah. That's the point where you see, ah, we now start to separate everything yeah. after that is not going to work because it's based on a false premise. It's based on a false idea that we could separate ourselves and get away with it somehow, right? And, and it's like no religion uh, would endorse this. No religion would say that this is a good thing. No ethical system would say, yeah, leave those people behind. That's You're a great person. You know, like who, who thinks that like such ideas make any sense when you put them in those terms? And yet, we all, to one degree or another, almost all of us, make certain calculations, take certain actions, have certain pol- polarizations, which emphasize this sort of thinking. Mm-hmm. And that, I believe, the, the, the lie of separation is the root cause 
of how we have come to this environmental and social disaster, this polycrisis, this crisis in meaning, which is like a black hole sucking in everything that we try to throw at it, everything we you know, try to fight it. Because as long as we have this idea of an other that we're fighting, instead of fighting, um, you could say, for life, when we're fighting against, when we're trying to hurt because we're hurt, because we're traumatized, you know, Bessel van der Kolk, the psychologist, the, the famous Dutch psychologist, he talks about the body keeps the score, mm. right? And he talks about how, uh, just like Gabor Mate, we are all to one or another degree traumatized. And it's not a game of who's more or less traumatized, but it's the intelligence of the heart to connect our own feelings of frustration, of resentment, of scarcity, of sadness, of injustice, to that of everybody else and realize that we're all in this together, no matter what, whether we like it or not. And, and, and that seems to be the, the limit of how we move forward, of how we deal with the fossil fuel industry, with how we deal with the capture of every single government on the face of the earth by transnational corporations. 